Today on episode number 383 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Jennifer Imizeki joins me to talk about implicit bias in our teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Jennifer Imizeki is a Senate Distinguished Professor and Professor of Economics at San Diego State University, currently serving as the Associate Chief Diversity Officer for faculty and staff. Her research focuses on the economics of K-12 education, including work on school finance reform, adequacy, and teacher labor markets. In addition to academic publications, Jennifer's work on education policy has included analysis for multiple court cases related to educational equity and adequacy, and most recently contributed to the Getting Down to Facts 2 project, an in-depth look at California's pre-K-12 education landscape. Since joining San Diego State University faculty in 2000, Dr. Imazeki has taught a range of economics courses, from a 500-seat section of Principles of Microeconomics, to a writing-intensive course for economics majors, and an Economics for Teachers course for students working toward their single-subject teaching credential in social science. In her previous role as Center for Teaching and Learning Director, Dr. Imazeki initiated multiple programs to promote inclusive teaching practices and to engage faculty in scholarly evaluation of their teaching. Dr. Imazeki was introduced to me, or I should say reintroduced to me through my partnership through the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. AQ's certificate programs equip educators with evidence-based teaching practices demonstrated to improve student outcomes and create inclusive, equitable learning environments. For more than five years, AQ has connected me with top experts, faculty developers, and credentialed faculty who are featured in AQ's courses to share their work and insights as guests on Teaching in Higher Ed. Jennifer, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hello. Thank you for having me. I feel like I already know you. I had the great privilege of hearing you speak at the Lilly Conference in February of 2020. And I'm going to invite you to bring us back in time. I'd love for you to conduct an audible version of your in-person <laughs> experience that you gave to us around asking questions of us, your listeners, about students falling asleep. Sure. So I think this is something that a lot of instructors probably have actually experienced. So imagine that you are in the middle of a class and you notice that a student has apparently fallen asleep at their desk. You see them with their eyes closed. They're just sitting there. I want you to imagine that and think about what is your reaction? What is the most typical reaction you're likely to have? One possibility is that you feel a bit of anxiety. You think, I, I must be boring them and, and feeling stressed out. You could get angry. How rude, right? Could be concern. 
I wonder if something's wrong with them. Are they sick? Right. It could be disdain or being dismissive. Like, no wonder they're doing so badly in my class. Or you could be maybe indifferent. Whatever. I'm just going to do what I do and they can do what they do. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I remember going through this activity with you and you had us do it on one of those polling software. Mm -hmm. And all of these emotions that you had came out. And I also can remember for myself early on in my teaching, having some of these same feelings, having both ones that are inwardly focused. You mentioned a feeling of anxiety, you know, not being good enough. There must be something wrong with me. And then you mentioned ones where we ascribe intent or ascribe, I don't know what other adjective to use, but we're ascribing things to other people that may or may not be true about them that then are causing feelings of us of, you know, that you're being rude, that this is somehow personally related to my individual humanity. Mm -hmm. And what I took away from the exercise that I'd love to hear more from you about is that both of those things aren't maybe the best mental exercises, although I think it's important for us to recognize it's a natural feeling. But if I'm only looking at myself and how this is somehow a gauge of my own worth, either at this present moment or in general as an educator, or if I'm only ascribing attributes to students that are untested, my hypotheses are untested at that point, that there's more we could do with these feelings and there's more, we could break this down a little bit. So how do you encourage us then to move on from some of these initial reactions and feelings we might have? Sure. If I recall, the follow-up to that exercise was what, whatever your response might be, right? Whatever your thoughts might be going through your own head is to then think about how that reaction is going to impact your interaction with that student, right? If your reaction is to get angry or to put something on the student and to think that there's something quote unquote wrong with the student, then your next interaction with the student is likely to be really different than if you're thinking, well, maybe they're sick. You know, maybe something's going on with them, right? How you then walk up to the student at the end of class and say something to them, what comes out of your mouth at that point, right? It's likely to be very, very different depending on what that internal conversation was that you had in your head. And this is something that I think is really key for thinking about not just what our own reactions and assumptions are, but how those implicit assumptions and thoughts impact what we outwardly then do, right? What we say to the students, how we behave with the students. And that's why I think being more aware of that reaction, as I always put it, I do a lot of workshops on implicit bias and things like that. It's not about changing the bias. It's not about stopping the bias. It's about getting in between your internal reaction and your external reaction, Right. It's getting in between those thoughts that start out in your head and then how that impacts what comes out of your mouth or how you then interact with your students. Over time, of course, it can be great. To, well, first of all, it's not great to think we're ever going to stop all of our biases because that's never going to happen. But over yeah. time, it can be hopeful to think about reshaping it. I do feel mm -hmm. good about the fact that when you went through that exercise with us, I had moved past the, if we're going to say it's a continuum, and I'm not sure that 
it's exactly a continuum, but that I had a little bit more sophisticated thoughts in my heads (laughs) about why someone might have fallen asleep than I did early in my teaching. But before we get there, you're talking about something shorter, because that that takes a lot of self-awareness. It like takes a lot of learning over time versus you're, you're describing getting between my initial reaction, and then how I choose to respond to that initial feeling. What what would you advise for us early on? And by the way, let's not just think about students falling asleep. Let's think about other things, students not having their cameras on. Let's think about students arriving late to class. I mean, what are some other ones that come up in your list where bias is really going to be present for some of us as educators? Well, actually, at that Lily conference, I had some colleagues from San Diego State who were there with me. And what they suggested I use the next time is students using their cell phones Mm -hmm. in class, because that's something that can be kind of triggering for a lot of faculty. And I think you're right. Like, we evolve over time as teachers. I know that when I was younger and a new instructor, I would have been much more likely to take all those kinds of things personally And then over time, you learn not to take them personally. And so things like cell phones, that's a newer thing for all of us. And so we all are still kind of trying to figure that out and haven't had as much experience with why someone might use a cell phone in class that is more benign. And now, you know, how people act on Zoom, whether they have their videos on or off, whether their audio is on or off, whether they seem to be paying attention or not. These are all new things that we are all trying to figure out and we haven't had much experience with. And so we're even more likely to jump to conclusions because we have, you know, we're basing our evaluation of why someone is doing something right on very little information. I so appreciate that you circled it back there at the end as far as the cell phones and the videos on or off, because I, as you were saying those things, I thought, when we massively all switched to being online, and I actually had already done a lot of online teaching, but there's a difference between doing online teaching in a program that is designed as a hybrid program that has some residency and has some Zoom. I mean, that's a very different thing from my first pandemic. I don't know about you if this is your first one as well. Doing this en masse and the collective grief, the collective anxiety, the collective trauma. And then also they're exposed to a lot of people who it's all new to them too. I don't mean to, I mean, it's nobody's fault that they hadn't taught online before, but that was a very different feeling. So some of the things that you just brought up, I remember thinking like, oh gosh, I just want to reach them so much. And there's a there's a expression for people listening who may not be familiar with these expressions of, of cold calling on students. And I try to never cold call on students because it's not mm-hmm. I find it that doesn't really work. But I do some warm calling on students. And I was better at doing warm calling on students in person than I was not in not in a program designed to be online, but in the non <laughs> designed to be yeah. online program. And now I just felt like just having started out my new class, I thought, wow, I'm better at this than I was the last time. I'm gaining my confidence that I can read the signals a tiny bit better, but also recognize we really can't read the signals. So how do I get new signals to go in the place of my biases around why someone might have their camera off or why they might 
there might be a really long pause. Are they listening? Are they paying attention? All those things. I, I feel like I'm getting my sea legs. I'm not sure that's the right expression, <laughs> but it's starting to feel a little bit more. And it, and it's what you said. We want to interrupt that. We want to interrupt the thought patterns and then interrupt the reaction. So more broadly speaking, before we kind of talk about mechanisms for interrupting, which essentially a whole category of different biases, would you talk a little bit about bias in general and specifically implicit bias? Sure. So implicit bias, when people use that term, especially these days, they're generally referring to these unconscious assumptions and expectations that we have usually around uh, about other people and you often associated with sort of the social identities of those groups. So when we talk about, there's a lot, as you mentioned, there's lots of different kinds of cognitive bias, but that term in particular, implicit bias is usually referred to talk to talk about things associated with social identities. And so we see a person who looks a certain way, whether it's their race, their gender, even the clothes they're wearing, it could be, right? But something visible about them triggers essentially a stereotype in our head that we have certain assumptions about who that person is, how they're going to act, you know, something about them, even if we don't know anything else about them other than what we are are seeing in terms of of their social identity. And the the thing about bias, and, and this is true for all kinds of cognitive bias, it's sort of automatic in our head, right? It it just happens. We don't cause it to happen and we can't really stop it from happening. It just, these are the things that develop in our sort of mental pathways over a lifetime of interactions with other people. And the way I always put it is that having implicit bias doesn't make you a bad person, right? It makes you a person who has grown up in a world with other people. And we see media images, we have conversations with family and friends and neighbors and teachers and classmates. Every time we have those interactions, biases form and are solidified and reinforced in ways that just evolve over our lifetimes. And, you know, there's studies that show babies who aren't verbal yet, right, pick up on nonverbal cues of people around them. So it really, it's not even things people say, it's how they act. It's the space that you put between yourself and someone else. And I see you do that. And it makes me think there's something about that person that's causing you to put space between you and them. And I see that over and over and over again. And it starts to make me want to put space between myself and people who look like that. So that's, that's bias. So bias is something that we're always going to have with us. Mm-hmm. How might we have a more healthy relationship with our biases? Because uh, I think if I'm understanding what you're asserting, we're never going to be rid of them altogether. In fact, would that even be entirely desirable to be rid of all of one's biases? Perhaps, you know, some of them are helpful to us. But, but how do we begin to evolve our relationship? Or is that even possible to evolve our relationship with our biases? Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? We don't always, biases serve a certain purpose, right? Mental shortcuts serve a certain purpose. And I often will talk to folks about this in terms of system one versus system two thinking, and I'm blanking on the name of the uh, the guy who kind of talks about this the most, um, oh which is terrible. <laughs> right? <laughs> It'll come to me. It will to me um, too. Probably as soon as we hang up, yes. And, but system one thinking is that automatic 
it's it's the automatic thinking, right? And it often will get triggered by things like lack of information. You, your brain fills in the gaps, right? Or or lack of time. You just need to react without having time to, to think about stuff. Versus system two thinking, which is much more deliberate and conscious. And if, if we were deliberate and conscious in our thought all of the time, we couldn't really function. So in that regard, yes, biases, like they have a role to play. I think what is key is in terms of getting between your bias and how that bias impacts our behaviors. First of all, it's awareness, right? And this is one reason why I think it's really important not to think about bias as a terrible thing that you want to deny you have. There's a lot of negative connotation simply around the word bias, especially I think in academia. We're not supposed to be biased. We're supposed to be objective and, and scientific. And that thinking, that, that desire to deny bias can be problematic because if we deny we have something, then we can't address the impacts of having it, right? So I do think sort of the first step is acknowledging that we have bias and that's okay because that acknowledgement helps us start to be more aware yeah. and self-aware and self-reflective about it. Daniel Kahneman is his name. And I could, Thank you. I could only <laughs> I could only think of it because I wasn't the one having to talk. You know how that is when you're talking, you can't, at least I can't think at the same time. But I'm even mm-hmm. thinking about, so some of our shortcuts are helping us be able to connect with other people, but the ones we Absolutely. really want to disconnect, especially in our teaching, are the ones that don't help. I used to have a lot of bias around funerals. I did not understand the cultural differences between the way I grew up and how my family has historically treated funerals and other cultures treating of funerals. And that's a really good bias for me to really (laughs) be able to continue to understand because I was making a lot of value judgments around students' involvements in funerals that were not helpful to my teaching and not helpful for me being able to really fulfill my mission of wanting to be a caring, competent facilitator of learning. So those yeah. are the things, like you said, um, am I ever fully going to understand those differences to the extent as if I was completely fluent in them? Probably not. I don't expect that my family's culture will change that dramatically when it comes to funerals and, and the, <laughs> the, the traditions when someone were to pass away, I'll never fully understand them, but to my expanding my imagination for where those differences might lie can really help me interrupt some of that. I like that you just use the word imagination because I use that a lot when I'm talking to faculty, like imagine this, right? And, and part of bias is that we are imagining something, right? We're, and that, and what we're imagining is based on our lived experience and what we've seen happen many times. But we also, it can be helpful to imagine alternatives to that, right? And that, again, going back to the example of a student falling asleep in class, whatever you might first ascribe to their motivations, when I start listing out all the reasons why a student might fall asleep in class, you can imagine those, right? It's just that some people will say, yeah, well, sure, maybe they didn't get sleep last night because they were working at a, at a, you know, a job all, you know, all night. But that's not the first thing that comes to their mind. Right. But once you raise it to them, they can be like, oh, yeah, that's a possible. Sure, that's possible. 
And I think that that's one of the ways that we do start breaking down our biases is recognizing that our bias is telling us this is the this is the motivation or this is what's happening. But then imagining all the other reasons why what's happening might be happening. I have found that to be incredibly helpful for me, too. And then to stop. I mean, you mentioned this before. You talked about interrupting the bias. So here's what happened, and then here's what I'm going to choose to do about it. Can I slow those things down whenever possible? Can I can I give myself, this is something that doesn't, I don't think necessarily relates as much to teaching, but I have found it in terms of reading about productivity in the broader productivity literature and specifically about teaching us to say no better before mm. we commit to something saying, I'm going to need to think about it. Can I get back to you? Boy, that that would be helpful. I'm trying to think of a parallel in our teaching. I, I guess the only parallel, yes, would be recognizing that when things happen in our classrooms, when lesson for me has been, I don't have to have solved this or addressed it perfectly. And I get a passing or a failing grade on this one five minutes of my class. We can bring these things back up. We are going to meet again. We can come back and say last week when we met, this happened. I'd like to talk about it more. So I suppose that's kind of giving ourselves a little bit of permission to separate what happened from what we choose to do about it. And then in some cases, we actually get to redo parts of it. We can, we have not utterly failed at our capacity for interrupting our own biases and also hopefully helping other people do, do that as well. I think that what, part of it is practice, honestly. And I will say for me personally, a lot of this has developed over time with thinking about why I'm, I'm personally feeling angry or annoyed with something that someone has done. And to be totally honest, this started with driving. I'm a Southern California driver. <laughs> and, you know, if it, it and there's actually a presentation I gave for the uh, a con in economics conference a while ago, I think if you go if you Google or YouTube it, you can find it. But I started by asking people to imagine a different scenario that you're driving down the freeway and there's a car you can see in your rearview mirror, just like being a maniac, right? Zooming along and cutting people off and zipping in and out. And a lot of us would react to that, respond to that by getting really annoyed. I know that I would, when someone tailgates me, I get, I want to like swing around and tailgate them or get too close. And, and then, but the scenario as people imagine is when the car gets closer, you look over and you see that there's a woman in the passenger seat, which is reclined, who's in labor, <laughs> right? So then suddenly the reason why that car is driving so crazy totally switches. The driver stops being an, an, a jerk, right? And instead is a really concerned husband who's trying to get his wife to the hospital. And my own reaction shifts dramatically, Right. I go from being super annoyed and, and angry to, oh, my God, I hope they're OK. And I started thinking about this when I realized how often I was getting annoyed with people cutting me off in traffic and then realizing once in a while I would be the one cutting other people off. But every time I did it, there was a reason. <laughs> right. Every time I did it, it was because, oh, I just I just didn't realize my exit was coming up so soon. So I'm so sorry, but I'm going to you know cut cut you off. And I just tried to get into the practice of noticing when I was getting 
tense and getting upset and recognizing that I'm in my car by myself. I have can not, there's no way I could know why that person is driving the way that they're driving. And once you start realizing how often your own reactions are based on, on information you're just making up in your head, I started kind of realizing how often I do that in other scenarios as well. And the classroom is definitely one of them. There's so much going on with our students that we can't possibly know. And yet we think we know, we ascribe motivation to. One thing that comes up a lot for people, Jennifer, that I see us struggling with sometimes is, and I I don't want to make this dichotomous choice, but sometimes it seems like people are trying to make it this way. It's like, but sometimes they are being rude. Like sometimes it is (laughs) intentional. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Well, okay. So I, one of the situations where for me, I, I, I draw a direct parallel to like the way I respond to dri- bad driving. The early on in my career, I was probably in my second year teaching. I had a student plagiarize and it was blatant. Like he plagiarized from the textbook, right? The textbook I you know, I said, you gotta, you gotta do something using material from these chapters. And I remember, re- you know, realizing he's, cut and pasted from the textbook. How stupid does he think I am? That I, I distinctly remember having that thought. He thinks I'm stupid. He thinks I, well, I'm not going to notice. When I talked to the student, he didn't understand what I was talking about. He, he, he was like, but you told us we had to, you know, use, we had to, to cite material. We had to use the textbook. I can't remember exactly how it was written, but in his mind, he was doing what I asked him to do. He didn't understand what plagiarism is. He didn't understand how to paraphrase, right? How to sort of retake this material and put it into your own words. And it, for me, it was a really eye-opening look into what my students know and don't know and how things that I take for granted as an instructor, that students will even know what plagiarism is, <laughs> right? Need more transparency, need to be explained and talked about, and that I shouldn't make those assumptions about what my students know or don't know. And I, I think that is a, that's a really common one, right? That about what students know or don't know about how to write or plagiarize, but then how do we react, right? And yes, some students do plagiarize and some students are trying to get away with something, but some aren't. And so, yes, some students fall asleep because they think you're boring, but some fall asleep because they just didn't get any sleep last night because they were up with a crying baby or had an all night shift at, at their job. So I guess that's kind of when people say, but sometimes the assumptions I'm making in my head are true. Yes, that's where those assumptions come from, right? We develop biases and stereotypes in our head because there's often a kernel of truth to them, or we've seen it happen many times. And so the problem is that our brain starts to just assume that it's always happening when it's not always. It's sometimes, sure, but sometimes not. Yeah. And if our responses are ways that really shut down people's ability to learn and grow, if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to pick the side that is going to assume the best of others, assume that they are going to college or in a doctorate program or whatever, because they want to learn, because they want to grow, because they want to expand, and assume that even if they don't, that what if I could be some small part 
of instilling a tiny kernel inside of them, of getting them reinvigorated about what education is all about. But I lost the opportunity because I allowed myself to lose my temper. So um, if you're going to make assumptions anyway, why not make good ones, right? Like, Why not make <laughs> ones that build connections or allow for the opportunity and possibility of connections? And it also, I think, is better for our own mental health, right? Why may you can make an assumption that's going to get you all mad and anxious and stressed out, or you can make an assumption that allows you to be a kind, caring, compassionate human being, which of those feels better, right? Yeah. And also, I think designing our assignments such that they're able to bring their own curiosity, their own context, their own things that they get interested and excited about into them, then it, you know, for some of those things, when we do it well, either it's going to be impossible to cheat or there's just not going to be a motivation to do it. And then, yeah, occasionally that will still happen. So what? Imagine all the hundreds of times that it doesn't happen and you actually got someone excited about whatever it is you're trying to hopefully get them curious about. So you were, you were talking about, you know, in before we started recording, you were talking about your discipline and economics and that they're being, you know, that well, actually just share a little bit about some of the ways specifically in economics you see us um, going a little bit off base as far as the possibilities that that good teaching might bring to a discipline that sometimes is historically thought of as pretty darn uninteresting. Yeah, it's so, you know, one of my favorite, I always say one of my favorite definitions of a professor is someone who thinks the world would just be better off if everyone knew a little bit more about their discipline. And that's how I feel about economics. I love economics. I'm an economist just through and through. And it's always so disappointing to me when I tell people that and they're like, oh, I took an, I took like one econ class in college and hated it, right? Or they, or they just, they get that look on their face that like it was clearly not their favorite subject because I, I just think it's fascinating. But I, but I know that a lot of economists don't teach econ classes in a way that's particularly engaging. And that too kind of confuses me because there's so much about economics that I think makes it easy to teach in an engaging way, right? There's so much about it that is relevant for students and so many examples out in the world that you could use to, to help students see how these concepts apply in their own lives. Those economists who do a lot of work in teaching in economics, there's all kinds of resources for you know how to use TV shows and movies and podcasts and songs and social media to exemplify different economic concepts, right? And to help students see how it's playing out in everything they do. The other thing that I will say, I don't remember if I did this in the Lily presentation that, that you attended, but I often talk to people about using economics going back to build empathy and to think about part of what we try to teach, I try to teach my students is cost-benefit analysis right? People make decisions by weighing costs and benefits. And basically the, econ the economic way of thinking is to assume that people choose something where the benefits outweigh the costs, right? Benefits are higher than the costs, you do it. If the costs outweigh the benefits, you don't do it. So one way of analyzing behavior and ascribing motivations to, to people's behavior is to ask, what are the things that, that give them benefit about that? Why might they be doing what they're doing 
what do they have to see as the benefits and costs in order to do what they're doing? And I actually use that exercise in my econ class to get students to think about the fact that costs and benefits are different for different people. Even if you're talking about the same decision that's being made, people take different things into account and ascribe different weight and priority to different things. And so their calculus of costs and benefits will be different. See, this is interesting. This is econ. <laughs> oh, it really is. I'm, I'm applying what you're saying just even back to, I think you were already starting to do this in terms of different times of academic, what we perceive as academic integrity issues. And if we dig a little bit deeper, even, mm-hmm. even the people that we have caught who technically would say we're plagiarizing or technically would say we're cheating and we're doing it intentionally, knew what they were doing. If we can have the patience to keep going deeper, there often is a mismatch of an appreciation for the benefits and exactly. the costs. Yep. And yep. I, when, one that comes up, you talked about with, with regard to writing. I also think with regard to reading, where mm-hmm. they just, and I see it more in doctoral work, maybe it's, it's just because of the kinds of classes I teach undergrad, but they, they just aren't understanding what they're reading at all. And they're being asked to write in a way that they don't understand. So they're taking something they never understood to begin with and then having to write about it in a way that they still don't understand and somehow are getting passes along the way. And until yeah. someone actually is going to have the real conversation of that. And, and that can be a real breaking point for some people like, oh, see, I knew I didn't belong here. I know I can't do this. And it's like then to try to I've, I've tried to get people to then. We have to deconstruct it over here before you ever try to write about it. So getting them to just even read an abstract of an article and then just talk to me about it. What is it conversationally? Because then we can go conversationally over here and then I can encode it in a way that might fit the needs of whatever writing style it is I'm being required to do. But it's sad to me how little sometimes I see us inviting people into that messy part of admitting like I don't have a, I don't even know how I got this far I don't even know what I'm doing and I haven't known what I'm doing for a long time now and now you're the one that's finding me out <laughs> you know that's um it's so hard but what an invitation though to to really engage with another person like they're a real person who's really having a tough time with these costs and benefits yeah I like that Anything else you want to share about implicit bias before we go over to the recommendation segment? No, I think that, you know, I, I work with a lot of faculty uh, who, who really do care about their students and care about creating an inclusive classroom for all of their students. And I just think that starting with our own assumptions, our own expectations is so just so important, right? Like if we aren't even aware of that, how do we respond when a student is struggling? Do we think there's something wrong with them or do we think there's something wrong with us, right? Or, Or what can we do? And in my mind, that's for every instructor, that should be the first question that people should ask themselves when they start teaching. What kind of teacher am I gonna be? Am I gonna be the kind of teacher who when a student is struggling, thinks there's something wrong with the student or thinks there's maybe something wrong with me or that I could be doing differently. And if you've never thought about it, I, I mean, some instructors never think about it. I'm guessing anyone who listens to this, your podcast has thought about it. 
<laughs> this is also one challenge as a faculty developer, right? It's reaching the people who, who haven't thought about these things, who are, aren't already bought in. But when I do work with faculty who are more you know, new to being faculty, new to the classroom, who haven't had a lot of training and teaching, it is, I think, one of the most important questions to, to start with is what do you think about students? What do you think about your role as an instructor? What does the ideal student look like to you? What are your expectations? And to really get them to uncover those implicit assumptions and biases so then they can think about how all of that's going to impact their teaching. That's so true. What do you think about students? What do you think of the role of a teacher is? Those are Mm -hmm. two really important conversations I don't think we ever stop having, but they really can provide a real foundation for us. I think we have to revisit it all the time. We start to get off base. Otherwise, we're not doing that kind of reflection. So and and especially with all the context shifting we've been doing. Before Jennifer and I get to the recommendation segment, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. And that is SaneBox. We all get so much email. Most of it doesn't need to be read right away, let alone interrupt our days. And so SaneBox's AI makes sure that only important emails stay in our inbox and the rest of it gets tucked away in their smart folders, such as Sane Later or Sane Newsletters, according to your preferences. It's really easy to set up and very easy to take advantage of additional features, such as getting reminded when people don't email you back on important emails that you designate, or even just snoozing your emails if that's something that you're into. And in fact, I did just renew my SaneBox membership because I get so much value out of it. It saves me a ton of time and helps me prioritize email without having to do that manually. So thanks once again to SaneBox. And if you head on over to SaneBox.com T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, you can find out about getting a free 14-day trial and also a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. Thanks once again to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. A lot of us have been, um, when when articles or advertisements come up about masks, they catch our attention. And so I'm going to share an article by Christy Verbecki, and she's from Wake Forest University. And she's recommending after some of us have been teaching with masks for a while, she's recommending some advice for us. And I'd suggest that people read it about how to avoid vocal strain, but speaking a little bit louder, speaking slower, just some advice for us to to take care of that. And then some recommendations on masks that I started clicking on right away. So I'm going to share that, even though I know many of us have been teaching in these contexts for a while now. And then to that end, I actually wanted to specifically recommend a voice amplifier in general. And then I'll share the one that we've bought at our institution because it worked well for us, but there's a ton of them and you'll, you can find them at different um electronic providers, and they'll generally be somewhere between 30 and 50-ish dollars. And I used one for the first time, and it was amazing just how, because I could hear myself, then I didn't feel like I needed to speak louder with the mask, and it just really helped with vocal strain for me, and I think helped the ability, I shouldn't say I think, they reported to me that they could hear me better. It was clearer. And so I really liked that. And people have asked a lot about, well, what model should I buy? Again, I've, I've seen a lot of them out there, but I'll, I'll link, link to the one that we found that was helpful for us. But just in general, what you want to search for is voice amplifier, and that might be helpful to some people out there. So Jennifer, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. My 
Well, I was thinking about this and, and I am going to go back to our, our, our conversation about implicit bias because my number one recommendation for folks, if you haven't explored your own implicit biases very much, is to go to the Project Implicit site, which is a, a, a website that some folks at Harvard have put together that allows you to take what they call implicit association tests. And there's lots of controversy and, and research about like, you know, how the validity of these things. And so I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, you should take the results there as gospel or anything, but I think it, can, it basically what it does is it shows you sort of images and words and, and times your reactions to determine sort of which direction your bias goes. And it's things that there, there are tests related to gender and race and ethnicity, but also like nationality and things like that. And I just think it's a really wonderful tool for provoking thought, right? And to really help you be self-reflective. And I do think if you go back and take the test at different points in time, you're going to get different results. And that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the test. It just means, you know, that probably you're thinking and maybe kind of beginning to see your own biases and, and how they're impacting how things turn out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I have visited that site before and had students do it as well. And also a little tiny bit familiar with the controversy, but I think the way that you're proposing it to us today is not as a means of a pass or fail grade <laughs> or Absolutely, any kind of a grade, yeah. but a self-awareness that we can be thinking about these things. And so if we were going to take it, we might just be looking at it from that point, but which is hard to do, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode, Jennifer. I love getting to have this conversation with you today as a follow-up to meeting you a couple of years back at the, not meeting you, but getting to feel like I met you a couple of years back at the Lilly Conference. Thank you. This has been fun. Thanks once again to Dr. Jennifer Imazeki for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 383. Thanks also to all of you for listening. If you've been listening for a while and would like to be kept up just once a week with the most recent episodes, show notes, along with some quotable words and other recommendations that don't show up on the show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to the Teaching in Higher Ed update. You can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and enter your email and get ready to get those emails once a week in your inbox. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.